Leviticus chapter 23. We'll begin reading at verse 33. So let's read the word of the Lord together, shall we? Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, on the 15th of this seventh month is the feast of booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all your votive and free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the eighth day, and a rest, on, a rest on the first day, and a rest on the eighth day. Now, now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. According to the command of the Lord, there were three times during the year when all the males of Israel were to appear before him in the sanctuary. These three were pilgrimage feasts anchored in the agricultural cycle of Judaism. Passover was the first, and it recognized the beginning of the grain harvest in the spring. Then came Pentecost seven weeks later, celebrating the end of the grain harvest. The last was tabernacles, which celebrated the autumn harvest of tree and vine. Of the three, the Feast of Tabernacles was the highest of the celebration feasts. So significant was it in the calendar that it, became, that it came to be known simply by the designation, the Feast. The Feast of Tabernacles was actually the culmination of a series of three fall feasts in Israel. These sacred festivals of the seventh month Tishri began with the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. The blowing of the trumpets signaled the beginning of that feast, and it was a means of calling the people to a time of introspection and a time of repentance. It was both a solemn time and a joyous occasion, as not only were they beginning the appeal to the mercy of God for their sins, but they were also celebrating the beginning of their civic new year. Following the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, came the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. God ordained that the Day of Atonement should fall on the 10th of Tishri, 10 days following the Holy Day of Repentance, the Feast of Trumpets. It's significant that repentance must precede redemption. 
For on Yom Kippur, the Israelite was able to act on his repentance by offering a sacrifice for his sin. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer the sin sacrifice for the nation by means of the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrificial offering on the mercy seat and in the most holy place of the tabernacle. Following Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, came Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, to complete the sacred festivals of the seventh month. In contrast to the somber tone of trumpets in the Day of Atonement, the third feast of Tishrei was a time of joy. Israel had passed through a season of repentance and redemption. Now the Lord wanted his people to enjoy the benefits of their renewed relationship with him. The rigors of introspection and searching would now make way for the feast called the season of our rejoicing. As the people gathered leaves and branches, meticulously choosing the best and least blemished, and as they laid the foundation of the flimsy booths in which they would reside for a week, the building of these tents served to remind them of their time of wandering in the wilderness. It was only by the grace of God that they were granted the security of their present and permanent homes. As their nostrils filled with the pungent smell of myrtle and freshly cut palm, they remembered their days of uncertainty in the wilderness in Sinai. According to all natural laws, they should have perished, were it not for the Lord who guided their path, quenched their thirst, and satisfied their hunger above and beyond their need. The delicate willow branches filled their minds with thoughts of water springing from desert rocks. The command to build booths and dwell in them coincided annually with Israel's final harvest, and so the name Feast of Ingathering was used for the holiday as well. It was a time of remembrance and rejoicing. It was a time of celebration and thanksgiving for the blessing of God. It was a time of anticipation for the continued blessings of God in the coming year. This Feast of Tabernacles was a natural conclusion to the trilogy of sacred fall festivals. The theme of Rosh Hashanah is repentance. The theme of Yom Kippur is redemption. The natural result of those two gives way to the theme of Sukkot, the theme of rejoicing in God's forgiveness. Repentance leading to redemption, leading to rejoicing. For seven days, the Israelites lived in tents as they observed the Feast of Tabernacles. While Tabernacles was so important that it came to be known simply as the Feast, the last day of that festival, the eighth day, was the culmination of the entire celebration and became known as Hoshana Rabbah, which literally means the Great Hosanna and was called the Great Day of the Feast. In addition to the custom of making and living in booths for the week of the celebration of tabernacles, there were two additional ceremonies that had developed around this feast by the time of Jesus. First, there was a special water ceremony. In this ceremony, the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with a great golden vessel, which he would fill with water from the pool. As the water was filling the vessel, a choir would chant Isaiah 12 and 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
Then with a group of his associates and all the elders of Israel, he would process back up the hill through the water gate into the temple area up by the altar. All the while, the crowd would be singing Psalms 113 through 118. When the procession arrived at the temple, there would be a great sound of the shofar. Then the priest would climb the steps to the altar. He would go directly to the southern side of the great altar, and there he would, he would position two magnificent silver basins on the southwest corner of the altar. The wide-mouthed bowl on the eastern side was used to receive the wine of the drink offering. Into the somewhat narrower basin on the western side was poured the water from the pool of Siloam while the crowd circled around and continued singing. During the pouring of the water into the basin, the liturgical flutists played and the instrumentalists were joined by a choir of Israelites chanting the words of Psalm 118 verse 25. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. As these words were repeated, the worshipers shook palm and citrus branches toward the altar until the water was poured. In addition to the water ceremony, there was also a ceremony of illumination of the temple that was observed at the Feast of Tabernacles. In this ceremony, the priests and Levites went down to the court of the women. Four enormous golden lampstands, standing 50 cubits high, about 75 feet, were set up on the court with four golden bowls placed upon the tops of those, of those lampstands and four ladders resting against each of them. Four youths of priestly descent stood at the top of the ladders, holding 10-gallon pitchers filled with pure oil, which they poured into each bowl. The wicks for these lights were fashioned from the worn-out liturgical clothing of the priests and Levites. The Mishnah says that the light emanating from the four candelabra was so bright there was no courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up with the light at the libation water well ceremony. The mood was festive. Pious men, members of the Sanhedrin, and heads of the different religious schools would dance well into the night, holding burning torches and singing songs of praise to God. The Levitical musicians played spirited music on many different instruments. These musicians stood upon the 15 steps leading down from the court of the Israelites to the women's court. These 15 steps correspond with the 15 psalms designated as songs or psalms of ascent, which are Psalms 120 through 134. The instrumentalists played with fervor, the Levitical choir chanted and sang as the leaders of Israel danced. The festivities continued throughout the night. Jerusalem glistened like a diamond and her light could be seen from afar. Now, there were two priests stationed at the upper gate that led from the Israelites' court to the court of the women. These priests held shofars in their hands and they waited for the cock's crow signaling that it was dawn. Once they heard the signal for the dawn, they sounded upon the shofar. Then they proceeded down to the tenth step where they sounded again. Finally, when they reached the court of the women, they blew another blast. Once they reached this place, the momentum intensified and the two priests began blowing prolonged blasts upon the, upon the shofar until they reached the gate that led to the east known as the beautiful gate. 
Once through this gate, with a multitude of worshipers, they turned their faces toward the west, facing the sanctuary in the temple. With the sun rising and the light of the candelabra paling, they chanted an ancient prayer. Our ancestors, when they were in this place, turned with their backs unto the temple and their faces toward the east, and they prostrated themselves eastward toward the sun. But as for us, our eyes are turned to the eternal. Now, over the last three weeks, as I've been talking about the feast that the Lord commanded to be observed in the fall during the month of Tishri on the Hebrew calendar, I've reminded you that these feasts are more than just the historical practices of an ancient people. But these feasts also have a prophetic significance. They speak not just of the past, but they point to the future. They speak not just of Israel, but they speak of spiritual realities for all who are the people of God by faith in Jesus. This is what is happening in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, when Jesus stands up in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Bible says he stood up on the great day of the feast. That would have been the last day of the feast, the eighth day, the Hashanah Rabbah, in the midst of the ceremony of water. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This is what is happening in John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus stands up in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, in the midst of the ceremony of the illumination of the temple, and he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In those two statements, Jesus reveals himself as the fulfillment of that which the water ceremony and the light ceremony only pointed to through types and shadows. See, the whole idea of tabernacle means a shelter or a dwelling place. It's this idea that the apostle John references when he writes in John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt is literally the word tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Old Testament tabernacle was right in the center of the camp, reminding the people that God was in the midst of them. If they ever wondered if they had been forsaken or abandoned, all they had to do was look into the center of the camp, and there they could plainly see that the Lord was in their midst. Well, now, since the last of the prophets, there had been 400 years of silence. 400 years since the voice of the last prophet had died out from the land. 400 years in which there had been no word from the Lord. But just when the people wondered if God had completely forsaken them and had completely forgotten about them, here comes Jesus, the Word, made flesh. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He dwelt, he tabernacled among us. He made his home among us. He settled down among us. He became flesh 
and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He was a present reminder that God had not forgotten his people or his covenant. God had made a promise and God now had kept that promise. And I'd just like to remind you that the Feast of Tabernacles speaks to you in the same way. The Lord wants you to know through the picture language of this ancient celebration that he is with you today. Oh, it may not look on the outside like he's there. It may look on the outside like everything is caving in on you. It may look like everyone has turned against you. It may look like you're going down to certain defeat. It may look like the path is completely blocked. It may look like the forces arrayed against you are too great. It may look like you're destined for failure. It may look like all hope is removed. But I came to this pulpit to remind you that the way it looks on the outside outside isn't necessarily the way it really is. The command of the Lord to rejoice at the Feast of Tabernacles is made possible when you remember that Tabernacles calls out from ancient times with a clarion call that says, the Lord is with you. Tabernacles serves as a reminder of Genesis 28 and 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, that may not do anything for anybody right now, but I gotta tell you, this morning, when I was just kind of reviewing notes and, and scriptures that, for this message today, I got to that scripture, and I just felt a quickening in my spirit as I read the last part of that verse. And at 8.30, as I was preaching this message in the first service, I got to it and felt the same thing. I got to tell you that I'm preaching it right now, and I feel that same touch of God to remind somebody that this is God's word to you when he says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Somebody needs to know that from the Lord today. The Lord is with you, and he says, I've made some promises to you, and I'm a God who always keeps his word. I always keep my promise. I am not going to leave you until I've done everything that I have promised you. Tabernacle serves as a reminder of Deuteronomy 20 and 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more, more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Tabernacle serves as a reminder of Joshua 1 and 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Tabernacle serves as a reminder of Psalm 23 and 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Tabernacle serves as a reminder of Isaiah 43 and 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Tabernacle serves as a reminder of Zechariah 2 and 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Tabernacle serves as a reminder of Matthew 28 and 20. Lo, I am with you 
always, even to the end of the age. Tabernacle serves as a reminder of Hebrews 13 and 6, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? I'm trying to help somebody understand in this service today, the Lord is with you. Right now, are you lonely? The Lord is with you. Are you discouraged? The Lord is with you. Are you struggling? The Lord is with you. Are you weary? The Lord is with you. Are you anxious? The Lord is with you. Are you fearful? The Lord is with you. Are you grieving? The Lord is with you. Are you hurting? The Lord is with you. Are you disillusioned? The Lord is with you. Have you reached the end of your resources? The Lord is with you. Have you been knocked down one too many times? The Lord is with you. Do you have more questions than answers? The Lord is with you. When you look around, you may not be able to see anything but wilderness. All you may see is wilderness, but take a closer look. He who has borne your griefs and carried your sorrows he who has paid the price for your redemption and atoned for all your sin. He who has promised to supply all your need according to his riches in glory. He who knows your frame and remembers that you are but dust. He who has conquered death and the grave and walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. The Lord of glory. He is with you. Praise be to his name. I wish I could find a way to just, just, just open you up and pour that truth into you. The Lord is with you. I'd like to camp there a little bit longer, but I got to move on. Not only does the Feast of Tabernacles say to rejoice for the Lord is with you, but the Feast of Tabernacles also says to rejoice for the Lord is in you. Watch this. During the water ceremony, the pouring of the water was not only a prayer for agricultural prosperity, but it was symbolic of the coming of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus cries out during the water ceremony on the great day of the feast and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Well, the next verse in John chapter 7 the writer gives the interpretation of what Jesus is saying. He says, this is what Jesus meant. He says, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So when Jesus talks about rivers of living water springing up from within, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Those great lights that were lit during the ceremony of the illumination of the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles, they were symbolic of the divine presence of God, the, the Shekinah, the, the glory of God. It reminded the worshipers of how the presence of God filled the temple of Solomon at its dedication. It reminded them of how God's glory would come into the Holy of Holies and accept the, the sacrifice of atonement. 
Now, when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, he is identifying himself as the prophetic fulfillment of God's glory, God's manifest presence in the midst of his people. That's why John 1.14 could say, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And then the apostle Paul comes along and ties this together as a revelation for your life when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? He ties it together in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. He ties it together in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Now you think about that for a moment. He has put all of his glory, all of his power, all the dynamic of who he is in earthen vessels, in clay pots. I'm not doing this very well. He's put this in clay pot, in, in, in earth, vessels of earth. All of his dynamic, all of his glory, all of his presence in you, in, in clay pots. And, and some of those pots are cracked. So he's put his power in cracked pots. But everywhere there's a crack, it allows the glory to shine out. The apostle ties it together in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He ties it together in Romans 8 and 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What I'm trying to help you see is that you're not as depleted as you think you are. You're not as helpless as you think you are. You're not as incapable as you think you are. You're not at the mercy of every wind of adversity like you you think you are. You have a resource that has been placed in your life. Jesus is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you in power. The glory of God is in you with grace and truth. That means you're not the tail, you're the head. You're not the victim, you're the victor. You're not the loser, you're the winner. You're not under the pile, you're on top of the heap. You're not barely making it through. You're overwhelmingly conquering. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. The glory of God is residing within you. Within you. The Lord himself is tabernacling within you. And because he is in you, then you have the confidence of 1 John 4 and 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Why don't you praise him if you believe that today? Praise God. Praise God. 
Tabernacle says rejoice, the Lord is with you. Tabernacle says rejoice, the Lord is in you. Then finally, I want you to see that Tabernacle says rejoice, the Lord is working through you. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is also called the Feast of Ingathering. It's a harvest feast. As wonderful as it is for the Lord to be with you, as glorious as it is for the Lord to be in you, it was never designed to stop there, but it has to go on to the place where the Lord is working through you. Wherever you go, you are a light bearer and a water carrier. Wherever you go, you carry the power of his name. Wherever you go, you become an ambassador of his presence. The power of his spirit and the glory of his presence isn't in your life, isn't in your life just to make you feel good and give you a spiritual tingle. It isn't there just so you can shout in the company of the saints. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the guide that leads men and women to salvation. The goal is not about you. The goal is the harvest. You know, every now and then I'll have somebody come to me and say, Pastor John, uh, I want you to pray that the Lord will give me a, a different job. Okay, what, what's going on? Pastor, it's so hard on my job. I am the only believer on my job. Everybody else is heathen. <laughs> I'm the only one. And the language I have to put up with and the, and the, and the filth that I have to deal with, every day, I, I just want you to pray I'll get another job. Don't ever come to me and ask me to pray that prayer if that's what's going on in your life. I'm not praying it. I'm not. See, God's got you there. He has strategically placed you there because you're a light bearer and you're a water carrier. Stop being a thermometer and start being a thermostat. Don't walk into that place and let it start affecting you and determine how you're going to feel and determine the atmosphere of that place. Why don't you walk in in the power of the Holy Spirit? Why don't you walk in with the glory of God shining out? Why don't you walk out in with love and joy and peace and, and patience? Why don't you walk in with the fruit of the Spirit being manifest in your life and you change the atmosphere of that workplace? Oh, can I do that? If my Bible teaches me anything, it teaches that you can. If my Bible is true that greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world, you absolutely can. Right. See, there's a couple of things you can do about darkness to try to get rid of it. You can curse the darkness or you can turn on a light. I know a lot of people that go in cursing the darkness. Why don't you just turn on some lights? Why don't you just start showing what the joy of the Lord is? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Why don't you start showing the peace of God that passes all comprehension that's guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus? 
Why don't you just start going in saying, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God and I'm not gonna worry about what anybody else is doing. I'm just gonna go and I'm gonna, I'm gonna bear witness to the light of Jesus that is in my life. Stop putting your light under a bushel. Start, stop hiding it under a, 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 under a pail. Open it up. Let your light shine. Just see what God will do. When they start seeing the joy of the Lord coming out of you, the joy that comes out of tabernacles, then they will start saying, I want some of that. I don't know what you've got, but I need some of it. See, the model is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus has just come out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. When he came into the synagogue, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah to read. Remember that? That's the audience response part. You're scaring me a little bit. Opening the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Is the Spirit of the Lord upon anybody today? Absolutely. Is the Spirit of the Lord in, 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 in anybody? Absolutely. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus, the fulfillment of tabernacles, understood that all the power and glory and rejoicing of this season pointed to the one most significant thing, the harvest. You know, in the Old Testament, God dwelling in the midst of his people was a sign to the nations. It wasn't just about Israel being the blessed chosen people of God. It was a sign that God wanted to dwell in the midst of all the people. And Israel was called to be a means by which every nation would respond to the invitation of God. Jesus is the embodiment of tabernacles. Jesus extends the blessings of tabernacles to all who surrender to him. And that's what we bear witness of when we go. But I want to tell you before I finish this message, there is yet coming a day when tabernacles will have its full, final, and grandest fulfillment. It's what we know as the millennial reign of Jesus on this earth. Let me tell you a little bit about this. This is the period of time talked about in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, whom the devil and Satan, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The prophet was able to look through the telescope of time and see some of what was going to be happening during that thousand years in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. He said, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. The prophet continues in verses 20 and 21 to tell about what's going to be going on. He says, in that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all whose sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. It's the millennial reign of Jesus on this earth that Ezekiel anticipates when he writes in chapter 48, verse 35, the city shall be 18,000 cubits round about and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. He's tabernacling. This is the time that Isaiah is talking about in chapter 11, verses six through nine, when the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'm telling you, the outcome of this world isn't going to be determined by who wins the election next month. The outcome of this world isn't going to be determined by the company that develops a vaccine for the virus that has invaded our world. The outcome of this world isn't going to be determined by the rich and famous and movers and shakers and earthly influencers. When all is said and done, we get to the end of everything. The end of the story is Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You want to know how this thing's going to end? I'll tell you. The end of the story is Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. That's the way this thing is going to end up. Tabernacles is a time to rejoice that the Lord is with you. Tabernacles is a time to rejoice that the Lord is in you. And you're rejoicing over the manifest presence of the Lord in your life. That's what becomes a witness to the world. Creates a desire in them for the same kind of relationship with the Lord that you have. You can change your world. You can. Tabernacles remembers that you're blessed. And whosoever will may enjoy the same blessing as they surrender to his lordship. Bow with me in prayer, please.